Nobody's going to give it. Nobody's going to give you anything. Uh, don't don't sit back and say just because I am Josh and I have a great brain and I have a great personality that I should just it should just be given to me on a nice platter because I deserve it. You've got to go out and work and earn. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Great Business Minds Podcast, the definitive show for the business of digital infrastructure. I'm your host, John Max Lima, and I use my experience as a digital infrastructure journalist to dig deep into business issues, but also get to know those who build our digital world. Great Business Minds is brought to you by Portman Partners, the premier executive search firm for the digital infrastructure industry. With over 50 years of experience, no other firm can match their knowledge, discretion, and connections with the top best level of talent in the sector. So are you seeking great business minds for your digital infrastructure business? Contact Portman Partners today. This week we are joined by someone who is building what is most likely to become the world's largest data center campus. The site is so big, it could contain nearly three cities of London. The most intriguing thing, he says this is the smallest project on the table for the business yet. We are talking of no one else other than auto racing enthusiast Josh Snowhorn, founder and CEO of Quantum Loophole who values approachability, accessibility, collaboration, innovation, and growth, qualities that have guided Josh's leadership in the interconnection industry over the last 20 years and building over 10 billion US dollars of value along the way. Josh has pretty much seen and done it all through key funding and executive positions at places like Terramark, Verizon, Cincinnati Bell, and Cyrus One, which recently was acquired by KKR and GIP for a whooping 15 billion US dollars. Outside of the data halls, his love for speed and cars has led him to launch Track Rat, the premier car club for track enthusiasts. He has also been a surfer for 39 years and a snowboarder for 25 years, traveling the globe in pursuit of experiences. Josh, it's, it's amazing speaking to you again. Uh, welcome to the, the GBM podcast. Before we jump into the hows and whys and where uh, of what you're doing and how you see the industry going, um, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, where did you come from? How you got into this infrastructure? Um, what ticks you um, to get out of bed in the morning? Huh. Where I come from is interesting. What, do you want to know where I was born? You want to go that far back? Yeah, yeah let, uh, let's get the whole family history. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I was, I was born in uh, Berkeley, California um, to hippie parents in 1970. Um, however, I was driven home from the hospital in an Aston Martin DB5 Vantage, the James Bond car. So my dad was already uh, a car guy and got me hooked into that. Um, I grew up, I, my mom, my mom and dad had eloped out to California after my mom uh, uh, was at Harvard. My dad was at School of Visual Arts in New York City. So I have artist parents and uh, uh, lived my life uh, in, in California, Colorado, Texas, Florida, um, been really, you know, all over the country throughout the years. Amazing. Um, and then how does the, the journey go into you getting into digital infrastructure, especially data centers? So it's pretty funny. I actually didn't send my first email until I think I was 27 or 28 years old. And I think you're 29, oh, wow. right? Yeah. yeah so, <laughs> so, so if you imagine that at the time, um, and I grew up in Boca Raton, Florida, where mostly where uh, IBM had their headquarters and or not their campus where they were building the PCs originally and things like that. So it, it, it existed where I was growing up, but it just wasn't a big deal. So I, I sent my first email from the um, Sprint email center at the top of Vail Mountain, because I was living in Vail at the time uh, in a ski resort. I've been there for about four years. 
And, uh, you know, that I, it was first one was to, uh, oh, I can't remember who actually, but anyway, it's kind of, it's kind of funny that, that I got into it very late. <laughs> no, amazing. I don't remember what my first email was. <laughs> I think it was, I don't know, 2004. <laughs> I can't remember when it was. <laughs> mine, mine would have been 1998 or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So I'm not too far behind then. <laughs> no. Um, but um, I mean, Something that always struck me about you, and I met you in Austin. Um, for the first time in person, was in Austin, and you brought a car with you. So you do have a passion uh, for Formula One, for speed, uh, for racing. Um, I mean, one, why? Why are you passionate about cars? And we've already had you talking a little bit about your initial beginnings, <laughs> how they're all happening in a car as well, and how your dad got into it. Um, but also beyond the why, what? does um, Formula One teach you in terms of leadership? What, what lessons can be taken from one industry to the other um, within this infrastructure where you operate now? Yeah, it's, uh, just getting into how I got into the car habit. It's, uh, uh, you know, it was always a passion as a little boy, you know, you know, things from like Cannonball Run where the, you know, the Lamborghini Countach was getting away from the cops and screaming down the road and <laughs> with the two beautiful girls driving it. That was always super cool. And all that stuff. It was funny is that now I realize how slow a Countach really is. And they were just loud. And as today, they're still loud and generally slow. But um, I, I think I, I think the the performance technology advantages of it, I, I really enjoy. Um, I drive my cars, though. I drive them on the racetrack. I have, uh, I have two McLaren race cars now, and I've had 10 McLarens total. Um, you know, when I when I look at them, they're they're machines to be used. They're not like a garage princess thing that uh, you keep in your, you know, keep there to polish all the time. There's a famous guy named Glickenhaus. He's a collector and he's racing Le Mans all the time with his own cars, but he collects Ferraris. And, and he said that uh, uh, keeping your car in the garage and, and not driving is like saving it, saving your girlfriend for the next guy, you know, <laughs> so just a little, a little, it's kind of funny, but um, so I just always really enjoy it. Uh, for me, it's uh, when I, when I get that passion out on the racetrack, by the time I get on the road, I drive slowly and normally and, you know, just, it, it, it kind of calms me down. I, I don't have any business to think about it to do that. Um, relating that back to the Formula One team, I have the unusual benefit of, of having, um, I think my camera just went blurry. It's always disturbing. Um, I have the unusual benefit of having very uh, strong access into the McLaren F1 team. I've been in the garage a couple of years at testing in Barcelona prior in, as the season is just beginning. Um, I've been to the factory probably a hundred times. I I've really been behind closed doors a lot and had the opportunity to know a lot of drivers and, and the professional organization. And it's really thousands of people that sit behind it. Not just the team, you, not just the drivers and not just the team you see at the pit stop, but the factory and the designers and everything else. Um, so, so, uh, just understanding how that, how competitive that business is and how it's defined by success on the track, which doesn't lie. You either win or you don't. Um, and watching their trials and tribulations, particularly McLaren over the last few years, they're the second winning this team ever in F1 throughout its history, yet they had a terrible period of just winning nothing. And so just looking at their trials and tribulations and seeing how I can, um, you know, equate that into, into what I do in life and success. I really enjoyed it. Uh, really funny. you probably don't know this, but the quantum Lupo logo is designed by Esteban Palazzo, who is the oh, wow. uh, second in command designer at McLaren. So for McLaren Automotive, so that yeah. this logo actually came out of McLaren. Yeah, I mean, I, I know his name because of the Netflix series. <laughs> oh yeah, you yeah, yeah. quite often. I mean, how, how did you feel about that? Because I'm sure they brought um, a lot of attention into the sec into the the field um, of Formula One. Everyone was hooked to it. I mean, me and my friends, we watched the, the three seasons 
um, as soon as they came out and all in a day. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm, a, I'm torn. Um, you know, <laughs> it, it's, uh, I love that, that, you know, uh, you know, guys your age or all the way down to teenagers are getting into F1 because that, what that creates is a generational presence. If Netflix stopped today, you've got a whole new generation wrapped up into, into the amazingness of the race. And it's, you know, and realizing it's not NASCAR or something like that is completely, you know, it's a sophisticated experience. Um, what I hate though, is the idea that, uh, the races are selling out in hours now and the prices are doubling, um, because it's just a matter of, you know, uh, of demand. Um, and, and so, so that's, that part frustrates me a little bit. A lot of, a lot of people coming in, not knowing, they're just they're picking the color of their team and they like it because of the color of the of the car, not because of what it does or what it represents throughout history and things like that. So, yeah, but but it's it still it's exciting. It's going to create a generational presence. Yeah, well, at least it was a success because if they do the same thing about data centers, you'll probably go the other way. <laughs> and oh, you, except, you'll for be my, except for mine. I mean, that, that'd be incredibly exciting. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, before we get into data centers as well. Um, Formula One is all about speed, um, and I am looking at the quantum loophole um, logo. You can see the speed of the circle going around. Um, but sometimes in business, speed can also become a bit of an obstacle and lead to failure. So how do you kind of balance, or as an entrepreneur, how can people kind of balance wanting to do a lot of things in one go and then having to prioritize uh, and take things a bit slower to really build the foundations in order to create a successful um, business? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I've um... I've been in this industry for 23 years or something like that now. And, and when I started out, the uh, it was a bit wild west in the you know beginning of the 2000s. Um, I, I was employee number six at Terramark and built Nap of the Americas, oh. which at the time handles 95. Now at the time handled nothing, but now handles over 95% of the traffic between North and South America, a single gateway. Um, but uh, speed was everything then. I remember we, we built that building 750,000 square feet six-story building in downtown Miami, very difficult building environment. And we built that in nine months, nine months, live and operational. And it was 24-hour construction, concrete pumps going in the middle of the night, um, poor neighbors in an apartment building next door probably losing their minds, you know? <laughs> and uh, so speed was everything then. And then when I when I I, uh, I left, I was there for, I was with Terramar for 11 years and a year under the Verizon umbrella after they bought us. And then I joined Cincinnati Bell to spin out Cyrus One. And I ran interconnection there. Um, and Cyrus One success, they were just acquired for $15 billion by KKR and GIP. And uh, to get to that number, we IPO'd the company at $450 million or something in value. So quite a jump. Speed was everything. Because if you didn't build those assets quickly to get to market, then your competitors are going to outcompete you with speed. They're, if they were faster or had a lower cost basis, then you know they're, they're going to outdo you. So that was everything. My business now is completely different. Um, you know, we're we're concerned with building things within a certain time frame, but our our outlook is five to ten years. That's how we think because we're building such massive infrastructure. So, so I've gone. Maybe it's with age, and I've I've become seasoned and matured now, and I'm slowing down a little. But um, I, I think I think the you know the you know the turtle's going to win the race in this one because of what we're doing and the scale. So it's a little bit different. I love that the turtle will win the race because <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, the, the market has shifted a lot, a lot. And I think, as you said, if it used to be the Wild West, things have not matured, but things have changed a lot and going to a more mature kind of stage, um, mm -hmm. certainly maybe past the teenage years um, yeah. of, of trying to do everything. But um, th th that's quite interesting. And um, I mean, I definitely want to talk about your project because what you're building is 
Um, I mean, one, the project itself is amazing. Two, the scale of it is beyond um, anything we've seen. I think that's probably the largest campus in the world um, that I know, unless the one in China um, is bigger. But I think this is probably bigger than the one in China as well. So, <laughs> but yeah, but th this is only our this is our baby one. This is only the beginning. Yeah, well, that's the thing. It's just the embryo <laughs> for what's yeah. to come. Um, but uh, before we get to that, um, what what motivates you um, to do everything that you're doing right now? It's it's interesting. Um, uh, uh, if you look back on my career, um, I, I've thrived on on innovation, a little bit of mayhem, you know, to get to that right. Because to innovate, you've got to take a lot of risk. Uh, and as soon as once once that innovation was completed and successful, I would get really bored, like really bored. If there if there wasn't another path to innovate, and all of a sudden, you know, you get to that, you're just functioning, you know, that just it didn't excite me. Um, so I think what motivates me now is, is, is really doing something completely out of the box and, and every single day looking at what we do as a business, what our future is going to be as a, as a company, where the industry is going and how do we, how do we outmaneuver and outthink everybody? And I, I thrive on that. I love that. I love, I love it when big companies are disturbed by what we're doing. That means we're doing the right thing. Yeah, and, and that's how you want you challenge the status quo to you um, incite innovation as well, um, not just with what you're doing inside wider innovation with all the other um, with competitors, with rivals, with the market itself, which is so important to take us to the next step. Um, having said that, do you have any fears when it comes to business? Like, is there something that you um, worry about that you fear in business? And it, it does not have to be related to quantum loophole, just in general failure in general, you know, nobody, nobody wants to fail in, in, in the case of, of, you know, my company now, um, as we raised private capital to start the company and, and that we, and we've raised hundreds of millions of dollars now our, our big, our main capital partners, TPG, which is a $110 billion fund. And we are their data center bet. But the biggest worry for me is that all of that money that came in from private investors, they're all my friends. These aren't just these aren't just people I, you know, that I, I didn't just go out and, you know, hold a sign up or go out and do a proffer and, you know, please everybody come and invest in this. I, I mean, 95% of these people are people I've known for years. A lot of them come from the car world, which is rather interesting. And I have three billionaires invested with me, which is kind of shows that, you know, there's some confidence there. These are successful people who have a keen eye, but, uh, but failure and, 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 and failing to succeed and having an impact, my friends would be devastating to me. That being said, as a, my personality is intensely focused on risk, because that's how you really get the gold. Um, that's how you succeed. If you if you you don't take risks, you're going to be just like everybody else. It's a rubber stamp approach, and you'll make money, but you won't make you won't have you know great wealth or or success created from that. Super interesting. And um, I mean, I, I was giving it for later the conversation around the company, but actually, you mentioned those three billionaires from cars they invested um, in Guanto. I mean. How how did those conversations differ, for example, with TPG? Um, because I guess those guys would be more used to maybe this side of the world, more real estate. Um, all the real estate guys have been shifting more towards data centers after COVID. Um, yeah. and the office going down. But um, those guys, they come from a completely different <laughs> sector. So how does it go? Because I mean, I'm sure the question is even starting, what is a data center? Well, they're, they're, um, they kind of, they know data centers because it's become it's become front and center in the language for making the internet work. So it's, it's become, you know, more common to understand that. Um, 
you know, one of them comes from the video gaming industry. One comes from uh, invested in one of the very first cloud companies and and became very obviously very successful with that. It was one of their first check writers. And another one created a virtual reality um, uh, platform. Uh, it's Brendan. He, he founded Oculus VR goggles and sold it to Facebook for $2 billion, which has now gone up multiples in value. Um, so, you know, our investors are, are um, they're technology savvy, but uh, uh, they didn't, they didn't buy into the business because they're technology savvy and, oh, that sounds like a great idea. They, they bought into it because of the team and, and what we're creating. And all of these investors came in prior to somebody like TPG being involved. TPG was involved in a competitive process to, you know, at that point, went out to 60 institutions and, and you know, we're really, as we really congealed our business plan. And they won that competitive process. But um, these other guys just invested because of their faith in, in me and their faith in the team. I've, I've assembled an amazing team and, and, and the fact that they think we can execute. Okay. Um, and that actually leads me to the question because you've already mentioned um, all of your investors, our friends, people that you know, um, these people they've invested because of the people behind the business. Do you think sometimes entrepreneurs kind of, they don't pay that much attention to contacts and the people behind the business and they think they can just get the money because of an idea? Um, do you think people value the, the, the value of actually having contacts um, and the right people behind the business? Oh, absolutely. Uh, so my, 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 my resume, you know, the, the provenance I've created in my business history is, is undisputable. I've been very lucky and, and had success, but it wasn't just me. It, you know, I, I'm, I'm a hyperactive achieving guy, but it's a massive team of people around me. When, when I went to build Quantum Loophole, I knew I had to bring in, you know, the right folks. Scott Nopum is our CTO. Scott was, you know, one of the earliest employees at AboveNet, which was the second biggest data center company in the world at the time before the dot-com bust. He ran data centers for Yahoo. He ran data centers for Apple. He's a principal in Submare, um, Submersion Cooling. He's, he's a legend. So bringing in Scott to in, you know, innovate and design and the team that he's going to bring underneath him, that brings a lot of weight. Um, Sylvia Kang, who runs site selection for us, ran site selection for Yahoo, then Microsoft, then Cyrus One, and now on to us. So just as that's a smattering, a small example of, of the people behind it. So when an investor looks at the business plan, looks at the concepts, looks at how we're changing things, and then looks at the team who's actually going to execute it, it creates confidence. And, uh, and so far we've done nothing, but, you know, over, we've gone beyond our goals, actually. It's been really great. Hmm. Amazing. Uh, and I mean, confidence really is, um, the, the secret of it all. Um, well, it's not page. easy. It's not easy. It's no, so it's hard. Not. It takes easy. I never worked so hard in my life right now. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but it, it's going to be worth it. I'm sure. <laughs> I mean, I think so. Um, I think so. It, it already sounds like it's worth it. And I'm sure as the years go by, um, you'll get more and more worth it. And the day you're going to cut the ribbon, um, at that massive site. <laughs> I'm sure the feeling yeah. is going to be um, amazing. Now, before we just finish this first part of, um, of our episodes, what would you say is something that's non-negotiable for you when it comes to business? Something that you just, you just would not open hand off? Uh, you know, for me, it's, it, it's, it's having a work ethic and a standard that, you know, I, it, being self-directed, really. Um, I have a very hard time with, with, with people who say it's not my job. Um, if you say it's not my job, you're not going to work for me and work at my company. I can tell you that. So that, you know, that it, what I found, um, and no insult to your generation, it's very difficult to extract people who have a strong work ethic with your generation. And uh, it, it's been frustrating. Um, kind of had to like, you know, if you had a rubber mallet and you could bonk on the head, you know, 
get your brain together. Think about, you know, nobody's, this isn't Instagram. You can't just go out and take a nice picture. We're going to give you a gift of a lot of advertising dollars. Our business requires work and, 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 and really overachieving. So, um, so that, yeah, that's, 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 that's non-negotiable for me. I, I, I need people with a strong work ethic around me. Yeah. That's, that's a very good point. I mean, I've seen it with um, people around my age. I've already experienced some people younger than me and older than me as well. Um, with a kind of same attitude, so it's not my job. And um, I, I totally agree with you. I, I don't like um, the kind of attitude, especially in smaller teams, especially when you're starting up something. Yeah. Everyone needs to do as much as possible um, within the day, as much as reasonable. Um, but Josh, we will talk about the business a lot more um, in the second part. Uh, but um, before, before we continue, here's a quick message from our sponsor, Portman Partners. Are you seeking great business minds for your digital infrastructure business? Portman Partners is a unique international executive search firm dedicated to finding the leaders for the digital infrastructure industry. Led by Portman founder and senior partner Peter Hannaford and chairman David Pye, Portman works with clients around the world in the internet and cloud infrastructure sector. Portman has a vast network of contacts around the globe and has placed senior leaders at many of the world's most prestigious organizations in the business. From investors to hyperscale operators, regional colors, designers, construction firms and plant and equipment manufacturers, Portman has the talent and experience required to fill a wide range of C-level and leadership positions. No other executive search firm specializing in the digital infrastructure sectors can match Portman's knowledge, industry expertise or the worldwide connections needed to conduct efficient and confidential searches that will result in successful placements. If you want to be at the top of your sector, get in touch with Portman, the best in theirs. To learn more and connect with Portman via their website, visit www.portmanpartners.com. Welcome back to the second part of the Great Business Minds podcast episode with Josh Snowhorn. Um, Josh, let's now move on more to the industry itself. Um, starting with data centers, what's your view of the market today? The market has changed tremendously. I mean, the last two years, the last 20 years, everything has changed, um, especially the last two years. How do you see the market changing, be it in the US, North America, be it across the entire globe? Um, what's your view? It's, it's interesting. You know, the market has really been driven now. It's completely driven by hyperscalers and the cloud. When I started my career in my, I started March 12th of 2000. I remember the date exactly when oh. I started at Terramark and I'd done a little, I'd done a little work around Celex and retrofitting telecom hotels. That was how it started. And it was all about telecom and interconnection and routers. Content was necessary to connect content to eyeballs at a data center, but cloud didn't exist. You know, web hosters existed, but you know that was a different animal. And I remember the first time I did a deal at Terramark with Amazon, and it was small. It was like I don't know, you know, ten racks or something like that in Miami, and throwing the handoff traffic. And within, you know, I managed them as a client. And over the years, they grew and grew and grew until all of a sudden they're taking entire data centers at once. And of course, that's now what that's what the industry drives towards. Now, there's a problem with that, though. Um, the the ideas of making, you know, 60, 70, 80 percent gross EBITDA margins in the in the data center business doesn't exist anymore because you, you have, you know, the 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 market, the real estate and development market and the, and the infrastructure capital market have woken up. And what that's done now is created low cost of capital coming into the market. Um, either entities like Cyrus One, who's about to be acquired, had investment grade 
you know, uh, uh, credit. So then they could go out and, and get very cheap debt. Same thing with digital realty trust. I, Equinix might've gotten to investment grade. I mean, that's how hard it is to get it. Mm-hmm. So it, then it becomes a lower cost of capital game. How are you going to build it cheaper with a lower cost of capital to build it, build it as quickly as you can. Then you have a competitive environment where you start to commoditize the market down and drive down margins. So it becomes something like a cap rate play. Um, so so it's, it's, it's an interesting dynamic and change right now. Yeah, this is super interesting, especially on the investment side. Um, and I was actually going to ask, and you, maybe you've already kind of got um, into, into the answer of the next question, which will be around what trends are you really keeping an eye on when it comes to investment? Because the investor profile is changing. Um, everything you mentioned is happening. Um, and things are moving at speed. I mean, we were talking about speed and total speed and rapid speed in the first part of this, this episode. But on the investment front, things are moving at speed. I mean, there's so much capital um, across the entire globe. Um, and there isn't enough almost to spend the money at. Um, well, what trends are you looking at? Well, so the cap, there's there's different kinds of capital. It's the first thing to remember. So you can go out and get a, a development loan from a bank. You can go out and get private equity capital, but private equity's got, usually they have, you know, they've raised a fund and they have a quick churn. They want to be in and out in two or three years or four years or five years at the most. The big change has been infrastructure funds and and long-term pension money. People who, who look at a, at a return that's you know, 40, 50 years out because they're building a power plant or a highway or something like that. That kind of money coming into the business has really changed things. So, and and that flood of capital, I believe at one point somebody said there was like 185 billion of of uh, of, of capital, you know, desperate to be deployed. Couldn't find big enough projects to deploy in. What that started to do is bring in dollars where they're like, if you can't, if I can't invest a billion with you, it's not interesting. A billion. Right. Remember, getting 10 million was a big deal or 100 million. All of a sudden, a billion is like a small check. So what, what that did is you brought in a lot of nascent players into the market and um, with, with that long term capital focus and all chasing the same land, all chasing the same electricity, all chasing the same fiber optics, all trying to get within these hubs and spokes of the Internet, all to serve the same customers. So something has happened artificially that drove down. Um, uh, returns called a cap rate return in real estate talk that drove down returns. But then you had, then you all this last few months, you've had a massive deployment from Meta, Facebook, and from TikTok, um, Bike, Bike, uh, Bike Dance, Bike Dance, and and uh, companies like that have gobbled up all the spare capacity. All of a sudden, prices are going up again. It's 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 this ebb and flow related to capacity and capital markets. It's quite a big change. Nice. It's kind of, I mean, but sometimes when people hear these big amounts of money that we talk about, and I mean, you mentioned one billion dollar now is um, it's small money. Um, mm-hmm. One billion, sorry, I don't know if I said one million or one billion, but one billion, uh, it's small capital. And I mean, we we see that when we write stories as well nowadays. It's if it's less than a billion, it kind of feels like, mm, um, is that it? <laughs> you didn't manage to get over <laughs> over the barrier. Um, but we're really seeing a lot more seven, eight, nine, ten, fifteen billion. Uh, I mean, mm-hmm. we've seen um, Sires One, we've seen um, CoreSight. Uh, we also saw the, the I think it's JGLP um, in South Korea investing 13 billion just to build 900 megawatts um, into cities Same. in South Korea. So, I mean, the values are becoming insane. And I mean, in the old days, even if you heard 13 billion, you would think 13 billion, okay, we're going to build like a global massive portfolio of facilities. No, these were two campuses of 900 megawatts combined. Mm-hmm. Um, it's crazy. So- People look at it and then especially when now that we've managed to go back to conferences and do some like face-to-face meetings and like talk behind doors, 
Um, some people do sometimes ask a question around, what about a bubble? Um, are you fearful that this is coming? Do you predict this coming in the next 10 years? What, what's your view around this, this bubble? Um, I wouldn't call it a worry because people are not too worried at the moment still. Um, but yeah, what, what's your view um, of where the industry is going in that sense? Well, I, I think our entire, I'll take a US focus. Our entire US economy is in a bubble right now. It's a real estate bubble. It's it's a debt bubble. It's a you know a credit bubble or whatever whatever you want to say. Commodities bubble. It's a big mess. Um, inevitably, that will cascade into our industry uh, because the because inevitably those services that consumers are acquiring are hosted on or being utilized via hyperscale providers. And if those hyperscale providers, those core clients start to slow down, well, then that's going to, you know, really damage everybody. So it, then it'll be a, a game of, of, of cost of capital. Uh, you know, what, how is your debt structured? How uh, do you have debt? Um, and, and if you're offering a, 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 an expensive product that you built very quickly with a very expensive cost of capital, you're going to pop and somebody will just buy up those assets. We saw it happen in the dot-com era and then other, other, that's really the only time I've seen a slowdown, honestly, that, that was, there were a lot of, um, you know, a lot of dead assets all around the country. So um, our, our viewpoint is that's inevitable. It's going to happen. Um, you've had this oddball situation where Meta and, and ByteDance gobbled up all the capacity, but that's not normal. Um, I think that people will then frantically build to get new capacity up again, drive up land prices, drive up everything. We're going to be sitting in the catbird seat with what we're doing because our focus isn't next quarter. It's not next year. Our focus is at the soonest two years out and really generally five to 10 years out. And, and so I think, I think we'll be sitting in a nice position. I think people who are chasing, chasing the, the rabbit that's just out of reach, I think they're going to they're gonna implode. Yeah, interesting. And, um, and again, it comes back to the conversation around the turtles and the rabbits um, and how you can actually future-proof the business um, to prevent um, being impacted by something like this. But um, talking about business, talking about quantum, um, I mean, now, now let's go for it. Massive project, 3.5 um, square mile project. The city of London is one square mile. Um, so you're talking about like three times the size of the city of London. Um, yeah. I think you were saying just before we got on the call as well, you're saying about 3,000 megawatts or so three gigawatts of power going to this mm -hmm. site, which is more than the, the four or five biggest markets in Europe combined right now mm -hmm. or at the end of 2022 the, with the projections. Talk us through the project. I mean, why why build something so big? Uh, why going to the Frederick County? Um, why? Well, first of all, we, we didn't just do it blindly. We had hyperscalers and clients asking um, for large scale land capacity. But it's important to understand first what quantum loophole is. We don't actually build data centers. We have the biggest single data center campus in the world at 2,164 acres. Um, we sell land, we lease land to others to build their data centers. So it could be a multi-tenant data center provider. It could be a government entity. Um, two of our first clients are a government entity and a multi-tenant data center provider. So, you know, go figure. It could be an enterprise, but most particularly, it's going to be hyperscalers buying large swaths of land and, and the entitlement that comes along with it to do what they want to do. Um, so Quantum Loophole as a company has land, energy, water, and fiber. So we provide the elements of the data center business that, re that are required, no matter what, for you to go and build your data center. Um, we view the actual 24-7 operations of a data center as, as better done by others. They're, they're, they're ready to staff up and operate and do those things. 
but those elemental pieces will always be needed. Hmm. Very interesting. And uh, so in terms of timeline, where, where are you with the project now? Because last time I looked um, at the project, you were still demolishing some of the buildings um, on site uh, and preparing the land. Um, where, where are you? Well, the, 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 if you look on a timeline on Google Earth at the site, that was actually done by Alcoa. We acquired the former Alcoa aluminum smelter um, because it had you know 1,500 acres of industrial zoned land. And that's a very broad definition. You could build, not that we're ever going to do something like that, but you could build a nuclear plant on it if you went through all the approvals. It's that, that broad of a, of a zoning definition. Um, so uh, so the, the, the remediation that was done by Alcoa was to get rid of any environmental issues that had to do with the former smelting. Um, you know, they, they're not the cleanest things in the world. And that was done prior to us acquiring the site. Um, so so we're, we went through the, the most important thing we did um, last beginning last December, we've got a preliminary plat approval, which is essentially the uh, the rubber stamp of entitlement. Yes, you can build um, uh, 12 to 28 million square feet of data center space. When I say 28 million, that's if we rezoned all the rest of the land we have. So, but it's still massive. Um, the uh, uh, in our case, the the actual turning of dirt is probably going to happen around August timeframe. Um, that's where we'll start putting in um, the core roads to service the various plots of land, the underground sewage water. Um, potable and non-potable water. So we have we have seven million gallons of gray water that comes by the campus every day. So we'll be reusing treated sewage water for cooling um, before it goes into the Potomac River. Um, we the the soonest thing we're actually starting on June 16th, um, we'll start the river borings to go across the Potomac River, and we're putting in a 43 mile fiber ring with 33 two inch conduits, enough for 208,000 strands of fiber. Um, all buried, all buried to uh, to GovCloud standards, and that will that that's really doing those river borings is kind of the a key catalyst piece to show the world, hey, that that most difficult thing to do, crossing the river, is being done twice, and we'll start that in June. Um, the the reason for June is because we have we have to wait for fish spawning to complete, so uh, <laughs> things you have to deal with. <laughs> I mean, I I just find the numbers like mind mind blowing. Um, I mean, nearly 30 million square feet of data center space, um, mm -hmm. three and a half square miles, 3,000 gigawatts. Uh, sorry, three gigawatts, not 3,000 gigawatts. That'll be something. That'll be interesting. Yeah. <laughs> one day, maybe one day we'll get to it. <laughs> um, 3,000 megawatts. I mean, it's it's incredible. Were there any, I mean, and you've already kind of mentioned that the zoning is actually quite broad. You could even build a, a nuclear plant if you wanted to almost. Um, were there any challenges though? Um, anything related to land re regulatory, um, were there any challenges in this specific location? The, the challenge is the scale. So mm -hmm. uh, ju just as you said earlier, this is more than three times the size of the city of London. So we're, we're doing, when we plan out roads and sewage and water and fiber and power and everything else, we're planning for an entire city scale to support the data center industry. Um, you know, you could say that if you build a small data center and you scale it up, it's just more of the same thing. It's not, it's really hard. Uh, the, we've had contractors look at it and and instead of saying it's a great big project, we can't wait to be involved saying, whoa, that's too much for me. It's too much risk because of the scale of it. Um, 
On the other hand, if you think about it from a capital perspective, as we discussed earlier, the capital industry and infra funds, we're checking all the boxes. If let's just say you're at 5 million a megawatt and we do 3000 megawatts on that campus, well, that's 15 billion of capital it's gonna pour into the campus. So it's very enticing, not only for what's on the campus, but offsite renewables that'll come in. I, I believe it, at full build out, we'll be one of the top five power buyers in a single campus, in a single anything in North America. Um, just to, it, it, like Alcoa's entire power load, the big, big, you know, I think the biggest aluminum smelter in the world, and there are one and a half gigawatts in the country. So just to give you an idea how much is going into it. So it, it's, that's hard. It, it, if you make a mistake, a mistake could be really big. So we have, everything is, you know, just making sure that planning's taking place properly. A single easement can get in our way. It's driving us crazy. So it's, it's a lot of work. I, I can imagine. I mean, the other day I came across, um, I think you were still a planning application for a, a data center. It was a, it was a large scale one. But you, well, My camera's blurry. Sorry, I'm trying to. Oh, it's make fine. It <laughs> <laughs> um, large scale, but large scale. What do I mean by large scale? How many megawatts did it have? Well, not as much as yours, but anyway, it was about 600 pages um, of applications, and more than 300 of them were just about water. Um, yeah. I've never seen. I didn't even know you could write so much about water. <laughs> it, it's crazy. Yeah, the, it's a lot of bureaucracy. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's not just um, it's not just there's things like water. Um, you know, what do you do with like I've spent more time talking about adequate public services, APF, APFO is what it's called. Um, so so actually getting those adequate public services, that's sewage. So we you know, one of our biggest delays is a big giant sewage lift pump station. How do we deal with the poo? Well, wait, there's no people there. So we're, all we're doing is building this thing for a theoretical capacity that we honestly don't even really need because it's a data center side. So it, it's um, uh, it, for, for us, it particularly talk about Frederick, Maryland, you know, we're, we're 20 miles as the crow flies from Equinix Ashburn, which is, you know, the, you know, the theoretical center of the internet for interconnection. That's where everybody wants to be. And that's the hub and spoke, right? That we need to reach 20 miles is nothing that's under a millisecond of latency. It's literally nothing. Yet we're surrounded in, in Frederick by agriculture and a community that doesn't quite understand, you know, these big concrete boxes that house computers. So, so a big challenge for us was, was uh, befriending the community, making them understand that we care about sustainability. We care about the agriculture, agricultural history. Um, the last living signer of the Declaration of Independence for the U.S. had owned our property. And uh, he was the only Catholic signer of the Declaration of Independence. His manor house sits on our property, and that's an historical piece in the middle of the campus we have to maintain and respect along with the community. Um, so, so working with our neighbors in that way, making sure that, that you know, we build trees and berms and buffers so they don't see these concrete boxes next to houses, that, that was very important. Okay. How, how did you go? What kind of activities did you do to kind of... I don't know if educate is the right word, but kind of educate, get the locals on your side. Because um, mm -hmm. we, we see a lot of these challenges now arising in Europe. Um, it's something that has been acknowledged by operators. I mean, especially if you look at Ireland, if you look at the Netherlands, um, there's been quite a few protests. There's been quite a few things happening. Um, what advice have you got? Um, I'm going to say your competitors, but at the end of the day, this kind of benefits the whole industry anyway. What advice have you got for other operators as well? Um, they need to, to befriend the community. Um, yeah. It, it's interesting. We, so fr frankly, Quantum Loophole doesn't have competitors. We don't do what everybody else does. We yeah. provide, you know, sort of the, we're a wholesaler to the wholesaler. So it's a nice position to be in. I'm sure we're going to get competitors soon enough, but right now nothing like us really exists. Um, 
You know, it's tough. I think, I think, uh, uh, you know, we're, we're in our case going into Frederick, there's only one maybe data center in the County right now, two, maybe. Um, so, so we had the benefit of going in and educating them from the beginning of how to do things the right way. And by having the scale of what we're doing, we're, we're utilizing industrial land. So that's, that's sustainable. We're taking a brownfield site and making it you know, usable. We're taking existing transmission lines and power lines that were literally dangling because that's where the substation used to be for the, you know, for the smelter. So we're reutilizing those things like that. We're, we're doing good things. Um, I think, I think the problem you have when you go into other markets, maybe it's Amsterdam or Ireland, if you're talking about Europe or, or Frankfurt, you, you, uh, you've got an industrial black eye because somebody came in and did, did it the wrong way and didn't care about um, you know the water and the energy and the and just the effect on the environment or the appearance uh, anything they didn't care about their neighbors and it's point. hard to climb back out of that hole um, that being said you know it, 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 in our business we need to be near the internet exchanges you know we we tether into those with massive trunks of conduit and fiber and and make ourselves an extension of them um, which means if you did that, say in London, well, that's pretty tough, right? To, you want to tether into the Docklands or, or you know, out, out at out at uh, out at out at the airport or something like that, or do or at a Heathrow, or do you want to go to you know in Amsterdam? Do you want to be you know around Schiphol or you know where or or, or Science Park or you know it depends where you want to be, right? To tether into that, you're still you're you're dealing with a community that's already experienced you, and they're going to look at you with a with stink eye, you know, they're not going to trust you. So it's going to be, I think that's a hard, Europe's got a tough mountain to climb because of history. That, that, that's a very good point. Cause um, sometimes we do talk about legacy um, as in infrastructure legacy, but I think this experience legacy, cultural experience that people have with, um, with the industrial side of things over the last I mean, hundreds of years um, and especially in the last century. Um, I, I never put those, that two and two together, actually. That, that's a very good point. Um, very well made. <laughs> there we go. Um, but uh, before we go into like, your other projects around quantum as well, what kind of like, what's the maximum capital expenditure that we are kind of looking at these sites? Like from my account, I think we are looking at 25 billion to $40 billion, anything in between around that, a full build um, when it goes 100% built. Yeah, it, it, it depends. It, it, you can relate it to power. So if yeah, we, I, I relate for us to power, get, yeah. yeah, for us to get to 3000 megawatts, it's going to require liquid cooling. It, it's, it's very difficult to take that much energy and put into an air cooled two story environment. We're limited by 60 foot of building heights. We can do two story buildings on our campus. Um, so to, to, to do something like that, you'd have to go to liquid cooling. And, and once you start doing that, well, the density could go way beyond that. And that, then it's going to be a measure of how do we get all that power to the single site? We have the transmission lines to accomplish that. But, um, um, you know, it, it, if you just take the buildings themselves, non-inclusive of the servers and routers and switches that would go into them, you're easily at 15 to $20 billion on our campus, getting up to 3000 megawatts. Once you start equating to the server infrastructure that goes into that, well, that you know the server infrastructure is is going to be not only you know billions, but also refreshed every let's call it three to five years. They're extending it a bit, um, and then you know, and then in a decade, is that technology now and that data center? If you haven't done it modularly, is it outdated? You know, people are pretty smart about modular deployments now, so they can upgrade and change in the future. But it's going to be very interesting. So yeah, and and. And you know, as I said, that's uh, kind of our our uh, our bait. This is our beginning. It's the biggest campus in the world, but it's smaller than other ones we're going to be doing. That's what I was going to ask you next. Um, I mean, 
if this is a baby and this is a mammoth, <laughs> what's what's after this a dinosaur? Um, so the original thesis we had was to was to go to four major markets in North America, and we're holding true to that. It was the Northern Virginia market, um, and and you know we were very secretive when we first purchased the site. We didn't want everybody to know it was actually you know it's just across the river, but it's the Northern Virginia area, and it's you know under yeah. a millisecond. We'll do the same thing in the Chicago area, same thing in the Dallas marketplace, and same thing out in Silicon Valley area. Yeah. Um, the there you know at, at, at in one market we're looking at around ten thousand acres of land um not a single site it's very difficult to find that much in a single site if you go to montana or wyoming no problem but that's not where we are so um so being in these in these cities looking at looking at uh in, in some cases very polluted industrial sites that have a, a, a you know blighted history we're willing to go and and take the long view on that site. We're willing to go through all of the environmental approvals, all of the remediation, everything else to create something that was that that maybe was um, um, you know unusable and turning into something really brilliant and usable. Taking taking into account existing infrastructure, we we're going to endeavor not to convert farmland into data centers and things like that, and you know really try and get stuff that's that's properly zoned and 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 properly located with the proper power and water and fiber and everything else so it's it's quite exciting yeah the good the good the good way to do it and i was going to ask you so beyond those sites in america one is there more sites in america two will you export the business modeling to other places because i mean canada has a lot of lands there's tier two cities in europe that are desperate to have something like this um and then i mean and then if you're looking to emerging markets then the world is our oyster, but that's probably more risky um, on a capital front. Um, but maybe you can tell me that. So, yeah. So one, what else for America? Two, will you export it elsewhere and where? <laughs> where would um, you like to go? <laughs> you know, we, we could, I could spend the next decade of my life in North America and probably be very satisfied with everything we deploy here at such a scale that nobody's ever seen before. Mm -hmm. um, could we export it? Certainly, you could go to you know go to certain markets in 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 Europe and and with the cooperation of the government, it's going to be necessary because of the because of the mentality within Europe, um, and and supporting sort of a data center city and and building something like that, it's very feasible. But uh, but somebody's got to put in the long hard work. It's not just I'm going to go buy this giant piece of land and I'm going to plop it all down and everybody's going to say thank you for doing it. Um, that's going to be a different animal in those markets. Um, so, you know, would we go to South America? Would we go to Asia? I don't know. Um, I don't like long flights anymore. I, mean, <laughs> I spent so many years flying on airplanes all the time. I'm very, I love that we're on a Zoom right now doing this podcast and I didn't have to fly to London, you know, <laughs> so it's, uh, you know, we'll see. We'll see. For now, on, whenever I hear expansion from you, I'll just look within a five-hour radius. <laughs> yeah, well, or maybe, maybe, maybe all of a sudden we franchise Quantum Loophole, and you're, you know, yeah. you're the somebody's got the European franchise. Who knows? Yeah, we'll that'll, that'll be, be like interesting. McDonald's. We'll be like McDonald's. It'll be great. <laughs> um, but then, Josh, uh, of course, Quantum Loophole—it's massive part of what you're doing right now. But you've also got some other gigs going on. Um, do you want to talk us through a little bit about what you're doing elsewhere with other brands? Sure. So uh, I'm, you know, I, this is obviously full time. I mean, I'm completely yeah. focused on what I do at Quantum Loophole, but uh, I also serve in the advisory board of Telecent. Um, they're robotic automated cross-connect machines. We're actually going to be utilizing them within the Quantum Loophole portfolio. What allows us to do is to do a cross-connect in two minutes. So you right now could be in London ordering a cross-connect on our campus or connecting our campus to the Ashburn ecosystem if there's machines there as well. Um, up, let's say up to 20 buildings, you could remotely 
enable those in a two minute process. And so to you know, do a thousand cross connects, it would take 2000 minutes. Um, so we see that as, as reducing headcount and achieving a higher performance and benefit and lower, lower uh, rate of failure for cross connects. Um, so I'm excited about them. And I, I've been involved with Telecent prior to even starting Quantum Loophole. So it, I think they're, they're a great company. And then um, uh, I serve on the board of, of the Global Peering Forum. Um, I'm, I was lucky enough to, you know, maybe I had a crystal ball, I don't know, but I founded that with Jay Adelson and Yob Wideman and, and a bunch of folks. So it was, it was Equinix and Terramark and, and uh, Amsix originally, then Lynx came in, then DKIX and all these other internet exchanges. But that was, uh, I founded that uh, 17 years ago. And uh, I have uh, one more year to serve on the board to be 18 years and I'm termed out, I'm done. That's enough time to serve on something. But it, that is the annual meeting of the world's peering coordinators. It is crucial for the interconnection of the industry and been lucky enough to be involved with that. Amazing. Um, and Josh, you've got so much on your plate. I know that, but anything else you're working on in the background that we're gonna be hearing from you in the future? Um, so that it doesn't require a lot of traveling. Uh, you know, well, Zoom is great. That's helping me. Um, it's uh, well, I'm no, going to spell no. the next Zoom. <laughs> yeah, it's. I, I think you're. I think as we start to, we're going to be a bit stealthy now about how we acquire sites and what we do in markets. And I think it's people are going to be scratching their heads and think we're nuts until until they get the full picture. So it's better for us to be quiet about what we're doing in those other markets in in North America. Just staying in North America right now. Um, but once once we bring that to light and we bring through the innovation and the timeframes and the scale. Uh, I can't wait to get another, another call with you. And you'll be like, you're doing, you're doing 10,000 megawatts and, <laughs> and how much land and, you know, it, it, you know, what's the time frame? And it, it's, that, that's going to be exciting. But you, you, you will do the entirety of the European data center marketing one campus. I can see that pretty much coming. Uh, oh, well, yeah. with, 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 with this one in Frederick is almost. Um, yeah. The whole of the, of the whole of Europe's um, data center power. They don't even, I don't even know what's the total amount. Uh, within the four big ones, is 2.6 gigawatts. Um, I mean, Dublin would be quite a lot. So I guess we probably do go over the three gigawatts. But then if you add all the other markets, I mean, I don't know. I don't even know if they reach one gigawatt or not. Um, so you, you will get there very easily, <laughs> in my view, I guess, in the next few years. It will, um, but th think about it like 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 inflation, right? Yeah. We, we, we have inflation and your $100 that seemed so important 20 years ago isn't worth as much. So think about 3,000 megawatts in 10 years. It's going to be like, ah, that was so puny. He was only talking about 3,000 megawatts. That's, that's nothing, you know? So th th those, thing, those, things are all, those things are all going to change. Yeah, no, you're right. And that's what we're talking about as well, the, the, the money. So $1 billion, if you don't reach $1 billion, it's quite kind of below what everyone will expect now. Anything below 100 megawatts is a bit, all right, this is the standards. Um, kind of small facility. Um, so that is interesting. And if you put yourself in 10 years, 20 years in the future, then... Probably all these values that we've been talking about today, they just they're just like a smear in the ocean. It's um, an interesting point um, to to if you think about the megawatts and scale. So if you take some uh, a small entity that has a 10 megawatt data center, their vendors are ignoring them now. 10 megawatts is nothing. It's it's like considered so they actually so these small guys at 10 megawatts, small, are having a hard time finding sites, finding locations, and getting vendors to pay strong attention to them. Think about that. Hmm. Yeah, so that shows how much hyperscalers are ruling the world right now. Yeah, do you think that's going to kind of spark the appearance of more um, vendors and manufacturers and everything specialized um, on smaller guys and especially edge computing companies? Edge I think, well, I think the edge is going to be, um, um, I think it'll be successful if somebody has the, 
the cojones to do the scale, you know, that needs to happen with that. So you have to go out and have, you know, I think if you have less than a thousand locations, you're, you're irrelevant as far as the industry is concerned. Um, I think what's going to happen with the guys who are, who don't, who can't afford to be on the cloud because of the expense of it. Um, yeah, they're, they're in that funny little in-between land, 10, 15 megawatts, something like that. I think they're going to do it themselves. I think instead of going out and finding a colo provider, they're going to find, they'll find an operating entity to operate their data center. So a service provider, and those exist certainly out there. And they'll go out and find their own land, their own location, their own investment. They'll capitalize it, build it, operate it, secure it, connect it. And a multi-tenant data center provider won't have anything to do with it. So Mm -hmm. I think that's where it's maybe going. Hmm, interesting. Uh, Josh, um, and then to kind of bring everything to like a full circle and, and close the episode, um, what's the best and worst advice you've ever received throughout your life? Uh-huh. The, uh, uh, <laughs> the worst advice was to somebody who told me to go work for somebody in a big giant company. Um, it, 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 you know, you, know you, should, you should endeavor to work for a Dow 30 company or something like that. And, you know, and, and work hard and, and start at the bottom and grind your way up. And, and I, it's sage advice. You're always going to hear something like that. Um, but it doesn't look at me and who I am as a personality. Um, I, I would have, that would have been, I'd have hunched over shoulders and be an unhappy guy. If I had done something like that, it's not the kind of person I am. So um, it, the the best advice I've ever been given is that you know nobody's going to give it nobody's going to give you anything. Uh, don't don't sit back and say just because I am Josh and I have a great brain and I have a great personality that I should just it should just be given to me on a nice platter because I deserve it. You've got to go out and work and earn. Um, and, and what I found in my career is that is that no matter how uh, uh, how much I might shine or achieve. So if, if I work in a company or somewhere where there's somebody above me, that person might not want me to succeed. They might, they might, they might want to not let me shine. Why, why would they? It makes them not look as good, you know? So it, it's been, it's been, it's been interesting to, to watch that. Taking those bits of advice and correlating them into who I am as a being and how I perform and, and do things has is, is been, it's been interesting. Yeah, I fully agree with both of them. Um, I mean, as in what's the worst and what's the best. I fully agree with uh, with what you just said. Uh, but Josh Snowhorn, thank you so much for talking to me. Um, and thank you for me on the Great Business Minds podcast. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in. And don't forget to review and share this episode and follow the Great Business Minds podcast on all your favorite streaming and social media platforms. You can find the links in the podcast description. Thank you again to our sponsor, Portman Partners, the leading executive search firm for the digital infrastructure sector. Portman finds the talent you need to protect and enrich your assets. They get it right the first time, every time. Do subscribe to the podcast and we invite you back again for the next episode of the definitive show for the business of digital infrastructure, the Great Business Minds podcast. See you then.